In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the very last chapter of Titus, chapter 3. Paul highlights the transformative power of God's grace and its impact on Christian living. He emphasizes the importance of good works and even obedience to authorities. And he reminds us that we were once slaves to sin, but through rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, we have salvation as a gift from God received through faith in Christ. Good morning and blessed Lenten tide. Today is Tuesday, March 2nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Do me a favor, next time you're online, Head over to lhfmissions.org and find out all the ways the Lutheran Heritage Foundation helps congregations and missionaries spread the good news of Jesus with foreign language materials rooted in the Lutheran tradition. Again, that web address is lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, I'm pleased to welcome back to the show the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota, to help us wrap up the letter to St. Titus and this third chapter. Good morning, Pastor Eckstein. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Good to be back. Well, how are things going for you this Lenten tide? I pray that they're going well. Um, any uh, anything exciting in your neck of the woods? Uh, just you know the usual uh, interesting weather that we have this time of year. But uh, um, it's always great to be in the Lenten season uh, and the 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 uh, wonderful focus on the love of God through Christ's journey to the cross. And uh, so. Uh, that that gives us a warm feeling in the midst of the cold weather up here. That's fair. That's fair. Down here in South, uh, pardon me, down here in Southwest Minnesota, I was going to say, I feel the exact same way. Uh, why don't we begin our time together uh, with some prayer, though? And I would love for you to lead us in that. Heavenly Father, as we examine this uh, third chapter of Paul's letter to Titus, um, we're going to learn that that just like uh, the the people in the region of Crete. Uh, we were apart from your work, uh, law, uh, 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 in bondage to sin. Um, uh, if you had not intervened in our lives, we would have been not only separated from you, but at odds with each other as, as, as Paul said, uh, hating and hating one another. But, but then the kindness and love of your grace appeared. And, uh, we're going to learn how you, you brought the salvation of your son to us through the waters of holy baptism. So, so help us to live every day rejoicing in your mercy, rejoicing in your adoption of us in holy baptism, and then what that means for the lives we now live as your dearly loved children in this world. Uh, bless you to that end as we study your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the letter to Titus has been, oh, well, rather short one. There's only three chapters in it, probably not as short as Philemon, which comes next. But in our chapter today, we only have 15 verses to go through. But before we just dive right into chapter three, as always, I'd like to give you the opportunity to, I don't know, give us a little bit of what's been going on, just in case folks are listening today that haven't caught the earlier episodes. All right. Well, uh, if you look here uh, at uh, Titus chapter three, he begins by talking about uh, how he wants them to live. And you, you'll be reading that in a bit. And it's important to stress that, that, uh, not only do we see this in all of Paul's letters, but also here in, in this chapter, that we are saved completely from beginning to end by God's work, by his grace. Uh, we don't earn our salvation by our good work, and we don't even maintain our salvation by our good work. 
But having said that, that doesn't mean that we are not called by God to live a new life. Uh, we find out, like, for example, earlier in Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul talks about what the Cretans were like as unbelievers. He even quotes uh, one of their prophets who says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And, I, and then I love what Paul says. That's true. <laughs> he creeps with them. And uh, that says something about how, you know, without God intervening in our lives, without his words, we're all capable, even if we know what morality is, we're all capable of rejecting it and, and living in very horrible ways. And so many of these people that lived in the region of Crete, uh, before uh, they, Paul came there, they were living pagan lives, unbelieving lives, uh, worshiping false gods, and, and living in ways that were destructive to themselves and others. So now that, that they have been rescued by Christ uh, uh, through the preaching of the gospel, Paul says, okay, uh, what does it mean now for how you live? Um, e- even though uh, we don't earn our salvation by our work, God saves us for a new life. Uh, I think of uh, what you probably heard last time from Titus 2, uh, starting in verse 11, Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So here we see that even though we're saved by grace, we are God's workmanship. He saves us uh, to live a new life uh, according to his loving plan. Uh, which is laid out in his law. And that leads to one last thing I want to say before we dive into Titus 3. Uh, in Titus chapter 1, Paul talked about how the law can be used improperly, and uh, he refers to the circumcision group. And we're going to get uh, mention of the false teachers again here at the end of Titus 3. And it's interesting how Paul points out, even though the Cretans were these horribly immoral people, uh, the, the solution to their licentiousness was not the legalism of the circumcision group. You had these false teachers thinking, oh, we're going to help these horribly, you know, sinful Cretans, and we'll do that by showing them what, he, what they got to do to be worthy of God. And, and Paul points out that, you know, boy, even though these Cretans are, you know, liars and lazy gluttons and so on and so forth, uh, the solution to their sin problem is not sinful legalism. The solution to their sin problem is not works righteousness. It is Jesus and his free gift of salvation that he won for us. And, and the result of that is that we now live a new life, but for all the right reasons. We're not living a, a, a new life in order to merit God's mercy, but we live a new life in response to all that he's done for us in Christ. And of course, Paul will, will press that as we go through Titus chapter 3. And it's so important. He ends chapter 2 with declare these things, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you because people's lives were literally at stake. And uh, what, a, what a good sum up for our, our discussion today. He begins in an interesting way in chapter 3, one that uh, I think would have been, well, it's Romans 13-esque. It would have been a very, of great interest just a couple of years ago as our churches were wrestling with the governing authorities over us. Uh, we're going to read that, but I'm only going to go... You know what? I'm going to go through verse 11. I'll just read the whole bulk of it, and then we'll divide it up over the next little while. So starting with chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Well, that's the end of verse 11. There's actually just a handful of more verses to go in his final instructions and greetings, but this is plenty for us to chew on for now. Uh, Starting back at the top, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and all kinds of other sort of, well, things that are hard for us to do. (laughs) What do we make of these, Pastor? Well, first of all, you might even wonder, well, why does he even have to say, remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, especially now that these are Christians who believe in, in the one true God and, and the, the, the rulers and authorities are the pagan Roman empire. <laughs> yeah. I, I can imagine them thinking, okay, well, now that we're citizens of God's kingdom, now that we're worshiping the one true God, uh, you know, we can either ignore, uh, the Roman, uh, government. Or maybe God even wants us to try to overthrow it. <laughs> and uh, Paul here, uh, as you mentioned, uh, 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 kind of allude uh, to what he talks about even more thoroughly regarding this issue in Romans chapter 13, that, that God has established government to keep order in the world. And that means he even worked through the pagan Roman government to do that. Now, of course, there's always this, um, you know, qualification. You know, we, we know that we must obey God rather than men. So if the government would ever command us to sin, then of course we, we must peacefully disobey and submit to God's will and, and, and suffer persecution if, if need be. But, but the fact remains that, that whether it's the Roman Empire back then or even some, some various governments today, even governments like China or Russia or places like that, many of these governments still have many, many good laws that are in harmony with God's law that uh, uh, help keep order in the world. And so here, uh, Paul's point is, okay, you know, insofar as the, the laws of the Roman government are in harmony with God's law, be submissive to them, even though uh, they may be unbelievers themselves, uh, even though there might be some things about them you don't like, God, they're God's instruments to keep order in the world. And then one other comment, it's interesting, not only does he want to submit, uh, to submit to them, but I, I find it interesting that he says, speak no evil. Uh, avoid quarreling, uh, show courtesy toward all people. So it's not just obey uh, the government authorities, but but show them respect. And, and I think of how that applies to our lives today. Not only does God want us to obey our earthly government, but, but also um, to show respect for them. And, and even if we have to correct them or, or show our, uh, uh, how we disagree with some of their maybe policies or whatever, we still should do it with a way, in a, such a way that we honor them and respect them. And I often think, you know, the political discourse 
that goes on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the mudslinging and 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 the way sometimes we Christians are are tempted to talk about politicians that we disagree with. It's one thing to disagree with maybe evil things they're doing, but it's another thing to show them disrespect and dishonor and to make fun of them. And I'll be the first to admit I've been guilty of that. Sometimes. Yeah, you know there. There's some politicians I don't agree with at all, and sometimes it's tempting to, uh, you know, talk to them in such a way that they're making fun of them. But here Paul is very clear, don't do that. You know, show respect for everybody, show courtesy, and that includes uh, the leaders of your government. And, and and this is just Paul's way of showing that that even though we're citizens of God's kingdom, even though we're looking forward to spending eternal life with the Lord, on uh, this side of heaven, government is his institution to keep order in the world, and we should respect it, therefore, uh, for that reason. We've been covering the pastoral epistles over the past couple of weeks, and so you know we can even go back to 1 Timothy 3, where he speaks of the man of God, you know, in this case, you know, leaders in the church, not being violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. And then in terms of courtesy, even in 2 Timothy 2, you know, the whole goal there is that we correct our opponents with gentleness. Why? God yeah. may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And so you're so right, and it, it's equally convicting on me when we think about the ways that we and really others have, have I guess, dehumanized our leaders, even when they are doing things expressly against what God would want us to do. Our goal is not to um, have vengeance against them, but for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. At least that's what our, our yeah. hope is. And so this shouldn't be really, uh, I guess, unexpected for anybody who's read Paul at all. Romans 13, as I mentioned earlier, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Back in 1 Timothy, we're to pray for all people, including kings and those in high positions. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But then, of course, we remember Acts 5, 29, right? We must obey God rather than men if there are times when the government tells us to disobey God. But, you know, ultimately, even in those cases, you can resist the governing authorities in a way that doesn't tarnish your, uh, I guess, your witness or the gospel or your even your own reputation. And I think, brother, about right. how, I think of the um, the introductions to, like, our confessional documents as they're dealing with, um, but you know, Charles V and, and other preeminent leaders who, with whom they have severe disagreements. In fact, these are leaders who are looking to uh, imprison and and even war against those who would disagree with them. And yet, I don't think it's just a courtesy that they go through all the motions of you know, oh, you're emperor and all that kind of stuff. They're 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 demonstrating the socially acceptable amount of respect so that they will be heard. Exactly, and you know, I think at this point we have we have to be willing to call a spade a spade and admit that sometimes Luther isn't always the best example to follow. I mean, we think about the ways he talked about the Pope. Now, even though the Pope was guilty of false teaching and, uh, you know, uh, and should have been rebuked, you know, sometimes I've I've heard people say, well, we can make fun of people and use this horrible language and look at the way Luther talked to people. And I said, well, that maybe wasn't the best way to behave on Luther's part. You know, just because we agree with much of Luther's theology doesn't mean that, that his behavior was always the best example. And, and so we, we have to remember that no matter who we are uh, and no matter who we're opposing, God calls us to still show them love and respect and courtesy. That doesn't mean we, we err under the carpet or, or, or don't hold them accountable, but we still deal with them with honor and respect. And, and then Paul goes on to, to, 
to, to, to say why we should do this. Because mm-hmm. in Titus 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and so on. But what is he saying here? He says, guys, if, if, if you're making fun of these people because they're unbelievers and, and have some views or, or, or um, ideas that are, are way off, well, remember, you w- would be that way if it were not for the grace of God. You know, uh, in, in this case, the, you know, the, the Cretans had been horrible people before the gospel came to them. And even in our case where we maybe have been Christians our entire lives, maybe our, our parents baptized us and raised us, raised us in the faith, we have to remember that except for the grace of God, we too would be just as clueless as some of the unbelievers in our culture. So, so uh, before we make fun of unbelievers and, 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 and you know, uh, dishonor them and say, oh, what a bunch of clueless idiots, we have to remember, hey, wait a minute, what, what would we have been apart from the grace of God? And then remember that Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Speaking in 1 Corinthians, Paul says obviously something very similar. He says, you know, you were, as such were some of you, he's, he's talking about some of these same categories, but then he reminds them and he reminds us, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so I, I do think it's fairly, uh, how, how should I say, optimistic that he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, and slaves to various passions, et cetera, et cetera, because, well, don't we still struggle with that, though? I mean, even in our sanctified state, there's always that battle with our old selves, and we continually, uh, bec- due to our uh, old Adams, want to seek out after um, you know uh, various passions and pleasures, and sometimes we hold within our hearts malice and envy. And so we're always struggling against this. So he speaks yeah. in a way as if it's a done deal because it is in Christ, but really we're, we're kind of works in progress, right? Exactly. In fact, you know, it's interesting. You made that reference to Corinthians where, you know, that is what some of you were. And, and very often that section is misunderstood, including here in Titus in Corinthians, when Paul says, well, you know, I'm telling you that the technically immoral, the, the uh, adulterers, the, the drunkards, the greedy, uh, the swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, I, I just had Bible study this morning on that passage, and I explained to the, my members, Paul is not saying that if you've ever done any of these sins, boy, you're out. You know, uh, if that's the case, uh, we none of us have any hope. What he's saying is, as long as you celebrate these sins and refuse to repent and if you don't need to be forgiven, you can't enter the kingdom of God. But then Paul goes on to say, as you mentioned, but that is what some of you were. Now, is Paul saying, oh, now that you're in Christ, you're, you're perfect and you never sin and you're never tempted? No. I, I'm sure many of those Corinthians continued to struggle with the same temptations and maybe even fell into some of these sinful behaviors and moments of weakness. So what has changed? It's not that as Christians, we're now perfect and sinless and never have temptations or evil desires. It's that now the Holy Spirit has given us hearts that grieve over these things rather than celebrate them. And, and we, we have shame and remorse, but we also cling to Jesus for forgiveness, but not just for forgiveness, but for the strength to resist these things and, and, and follow God's goodwill for our lives. So you're absolutely right. Even though Paul sounds like he's saying in Titus 3 that, well, we're past these things. What he really means is, okay, you used to just, this defined you as an individual. We used to be these people who, who just celebrated these things and, and saw no problem with them. But now we realize this is not who we are. This is not what God wants us to be. A Christ has set us free from our sin. 
and for a new life. And so it's a daily life of repentance and faith now as new believers. You know, before I became a Lutheran, I came from a, a faith tradition that really focused on, well, doing good works, which, of course, we should focus on that too, but basically on the concept that once you're saved, you're always saved, and you're free from sin, and then if you sin, then you've backslidden and are no longer sl- saved, or right. at its most extreme, you were never saved to begin with, so now you have to do the whole process of giving your heart to Jesus, even being baptized again to be saved, and it becomes this constant battle to be good enough for God. Coming into the Lutheran faith, you know, there's this freeing gospel reality that we do struggle with sin, but we find our forgiveness not in our own works, but in Christ. But I will yeah. say that now, having been in the Lutheran faith for a couple decades, um, we, I guess now as Lutherans, tend to sometimes lean towards the other direction, though. Like, well, yeah. I'm saved by grace, not by work, so therefore it doesn't matter that I'm a poor, miserable sinner. And that's not the point, right? We're supposed exactly. to consider ourselves having been once foolish and disobedient, not currently, even though we might still struggle with it. It's, it's a hard balance, isn't it? It is. And, and I think that's why as Lutheran pastors, especially, we need to challenge ourselves because sometimes we can fall, you know, uh, 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 the idea that law gospel, law gospel, law gospel is driven into our heads in seminary, and that's a good thing, but uh, that's not the way to structure every sermon. The temptation is to say, well, I'm a, the first half of the sermon, I'm going to tell everybody what horrible sinners they are, and then the second half of the sermon, I'm going to tell them they're all forgiven, and then amen. <laughs> right. As, as, as though that's the only thing to say, and yet here we see not only in Titus, but in many of Paul's letters, he, he says, now that you are saved, let me show you what this new life looks like. Uh, let me show you uh, uh, how God lovingly uh, calls you to live as his new creations in Christ. And so there is indeed a place for talking about what we would call the life of sanctification, the life of good work uh, for those who have been saved completely by grace from beginning to end. So uh, we're not, uh, you know, uh, Challenge, we're not compromising our Lutheran understanding of law gospel by by uh, uh, going along with Paul and saying in a sermon, hey, guys, uh, based on this text that I'm preaching on, uh, God is telling you that as his baptized and forgiven children, this is how he wants you now to live. And, and that's re- really a very appropriate way uh, to talk to Christians according to Holy Scripture. Yeah, I mean, he's. I think he keeps that distinction very clear because verse 3 begins, for we ourselves were once foolish, et cetera, et cetera. And then verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. And then he even makes it clear, not because of our works, but according to his mercy. And then he says something really important and something that growing up I didn't have a good grasp on because of the tradition I was in by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, being a, uh, a a full-fledged Lutheran at this point, um, I, I recognize, of course, that this is the washing of regeneration the Holy Spirit does to us through baptism. But maybe help the, the listeners at home if they're still sort of struggling with how baptism saves, and, and people do. Don't make no mistake, folks at home. There are people, even in Lutheran churches, that still struggle with this. I I constantly am um, talking ab- against this idea of dedicating one's life to Christ or giving your heart to Jesus as a means by which one is saved, because this is so part of our, I guess, part of the Protestant culture in America. So there are plenty of Lutherans who really don't understand that, well, no, this was done in baptism. Uh, help us understand that, brother. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have I had a member who talked to me recently. Who, he he was at a, a church, a Baptist church for a Sunday sermon, and uh, the he said the the pastor clearly said baptism doesn't give us forgiveness and it doesn't save us. And he said, Pastor, how would you respond to that? I said, Well, I would just point him to the scriptures where it does say that baptism forgives us and it does say that it right. saves us. You know, I think of Acts chapter two, uh, Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or first Peter three, baptism now saves you. Now, um, even though the Bible clearly teaches that, I think where people from non-Luther traditions get confused is that they have been raised uh, to understand baptism as a mere symbol of your adult decision to give your heart to Jesus. Right. The only problem with that is I, I've even asked Baptist pastors that. I said, okay, uh, so you believe baptism is a symbol of your adult decision to follow Christ? Absolutely. Where in the Bible does it talk about baptism that way? And it's almost like they've never been asked that question before. And they really struggled because every time the Bible talks about baptism, it's never as a symbol of something we're doing. It's always an instrument God is using to give us his salvific gift. And uh, that's what we see going on here. But but when when people in a non-Lutheran tradition hear the biblical statement, baptism now saves you, the reason they freak out is that to them that sounds like works righteousness because they view baptism as an ordinance. They view it as an act of obedience. And so when they hear Lutheran say the very biblical teaching, baptism now saves you, they're thinking we're saying, oh, we're earning our salvation by something we do. And then what we have to explain to them, what Paul is saying here is, first of all, uh, in verse four, that we're saved by God's kindness, not because of anything we've done. Uh, and then it makes it clear that he saved us through. So here we get the teaching of, of what Lutherans would call the means of grace. The fact that God uses various instruments like preaching, absolution, the Lord's Supper, baptism, to deliver the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection to us. And so that's what's going on here. Uh, the reason uh, Paul can say here that he saved us through uh, the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the reason Peter can say that baptism now saves you is that it is God who is at work in holy baptism, uh, delivering this salvation to you and even creating in you the faith to receive these gifts. In fact, I, uh, last thing before I um, uh, give it over to you, it, he describes baptism with two aspects. There's the sense that it washes us, the forgiveness of sin, but there's also the sense that it renews us. So what we think of what Jesus says, you must be born again of water and the spirit. So you have both the idea that baptism washes away the guilt of our sin, but also that it's recreative, that, that the Holy Spirit works through baptism to give us new hearts that are receptive to the gifts of God. Or, or we think of what Luther says in his explanation to the third article of the creed, where he says, I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called me. And, and this is what Paul's getting at here. The Holy Spirit works through baptism to uh, regenerate us, that we might receive the washing, the forgiveness that God delivers to us in holy baptism. Well, I certainly believe that many out there just really have not grasped this understanding. My my dad, who I mentioned frequently on the show, uh, when I became a Lutheran, he came along with me. Uh, he'll readily admit, 
And now, of course, he's an elder in his church, and he's exploring some uh, extra education to become equipped to uh, serve in that role. So he's thoroughly Lutheran now, but he recounted to me his first time in a Lutheran church where the pastor gets up and does the absolution, right? I've, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. And he says, that was it. Stood up and walked out. You know, right? Nobody can forgive sins but God. And I think that's the same. There's a little bit of willful, willful misunderstanding when it comes to baptism, because I, I think of Paul when he says things like, um, I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. And, and no, none of my Baptist friends will question well, Paul doesn't save, God saves. So it's the same thing with baptism. Of course God's doing the saving. It's just he's chosen, just like he chose Paul to save people, he's chosen baptism as the means through which he gives people faith and saves them. Yeah. And in a couple, uh, you know, I wrote an article once on responding to the most common objections to infant baptism and baptismal regeneration, Mm. baptismal regeneration. And, And two of the pushbacks we would get would be that, First of all, they would say, well, if God uh, really gives these gifts to us through baptism, then what about the people that, that are now living as unbelievers, even though they were baptized as babies? You know, uh, I know Joe Luther, and he lives across the street. He's 40 years old, and he, he, he says he's an agnostic. He hasn't been to church in years. What about that? Well, uh, as Lutherans, we point out that, that even though God gives us salvation and baptism, we also believe what Scripture teaches that, God's grace can be rejected. Now, that's another problem. You know, the whole once saved, always saved. You know, once God saves you, uh, it can't be lost. But the Bible says otherwise. It's possible to receive salvation and holy baptism and then later reject it. But here's the thing. If someone rejects the salvation God gave them in holy baptism, that does not invalidate what God did for them in their baptism. And I've often pointed out to non-Lutherans that if you say, well, you shouldn't baptize babies because some of them grow up to reject the faith. I'll point out, well, you know, have you ever had people come forward at some of your altar calls or your crusades and they give their heart to Jesus? And then you find out that 10 years later, they're now unbelievers. And I've had them say, well, yeah, that's happened. I said, okay, well, then you should stop preaching to adults. Don't preach to adults ever again, because some of them later right. reject the faith. <laughs> and then they say, well, that's crazy. That's nuts. I said, yeah, you're right. It is. You know, just like you don't stop preaching to adults, even though some of them later turn away from it, you don't stop baptizing babies, even though sadly some might grow up to reject. Uh, our unbelief does not invalidate God's uh, means of grace. That's 100% right. It reminds me of our of our Calvinist friends who, who believe that God has already decided who's going to heaven and who's going to hell, and yet for some weird reason and felicitous inconsistency, we call it, they still go around telling people about Jesus anyway. So, I mean, we're glad they do it, but it doesn't really mesh with their own theology. Well, anyway, that's something for us to chew on and think about as we take just a few moments for a break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, uh, Pastor Eckstein and I will continue on Titus chapter 3. What's happening in Germany's Lutheran churches? where Iranian refugees are flooding through the doors. What new opportunities for sharing the Christian faith are arising in communist Vietnam, and how can my church play a part? Mission speakers, all LCMS pastors from the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, will come to your church, free of charge, to preach and lead Bible studies tying into this exciting work going on all around the world. To schedule your speaker, call LHF at 800-554-0723. 
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Before we get back into the text, I just want to remind you, as I always like to do about right now, that I just uh, really appreciate you listening. It means the world to me that you've tuned in, and I also really love when you share the Thy Strong Word program with your friends and family. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's show, you know, you can drop me a line, pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook. I'd love to hear from you there. But regardless, thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you for being so faithful. All right, Pastor, before the break, we were, I guess, starting to rub it into some of our Christian friends who might not think exactly the same way we do. But again, this is not out of what we have been told not to do, right? We've just been told how we should be um, not foolish, not led astray, not slaves to various passions, also to avoid quarreling and to be gentle. So we always have to remember that because sometimes, and I can speak for myself for sure, my passionate desire that people know the truth can get a little uh, a hold on me. So when we talk passionately about these things, this is not because we don't love our neighbors in different Christian traditions. In fact, I would argue it's because we do. We desperately would love for people to have the same comfort and assurance that we find in the Scriptures. A good example, I'll tell you a very quick story. When I was on Vicarage, this is over 30 years ago now, um, uh, uh, I ended up counseling a woman who had just walked off the street into our church. I don't even think she knew we were a Lutheran church. She just saw a cross and came in. And long story short, she was just in tears. And I said, well, what's wrong? Tell me your story. And she said, well, um, I've been trying to uh, do this Christian thing and, and, and know for sure that I'm saved. And then she even said to me, and I've been baptized seven times. Wow. And I said, could you unpack it? Why baptize? She says, well, you know, because baptism is my sign to God and others that I'm taking my faith seriously and ready to to live a a new life. But it seems like every time I was baptized, uh, I would eventually backslide and and fall into a sin again. And that was a a sign that I I didn't do it right and I'm not saved. And and I I just don't know if I'll ever get it right. What, What hope is there for me? And I thought, this poor woman, she has no consolation because she has viewed baptism not as God's gospel promise to her, but as some sign that she has to live a life worthy enough for God in order to be saved. And she was just being crushed by that. And so out of love for her, I said, well, first of all, you shouldn't have been baptized seven times because let me tell you what God did for you in your first baptism. And, And the whole idea that God did something for her in baptism was news to her. And, but when I explained it to her, boy, you could just see this weight being lifted off of her. And, and so we, we, we do want to, uh, correct people's misunderstanding, not in a pompous way to belittle them or just win an argument, but for the sake of helping them understand the, the gospel promise in baptism. And, and one last thing I want to say where, where other non-Lutherans sometimes get confused, they'll hear us say, well, God gives us the salvation in baptism. And then they'll say, well, are, are you saying then if someone dies before they're baptized, they're damned? Like what, what about little babies that die without baptism and, uh, or an adult that hears the gospel, but he dies before he's baptized? Well, uh, we clearly teach that even though God delivers salvation and baptism, that's not the only means he uses. And we've never taught that inability uh, to be baptized for whatever reason means you're damned. Uh, we're saved through faith in Jesus. So um, uh, a, a baby can be brought to uh, uh, faith in Christ by the, the word of God uh, without being baptized. And, 
and an adult who's been brought to faith uh, through the word of God, but dies before baptism is, is saved. Um, but the point is, uh, e- even though those exceptions are true, we still encourage people to receive the, the gift that God gives us in holy baptism. And, and, and this is another mystery that Lutherans like to um, assert. You know, the question is, does God give us salvation in baptism or through the preaching of the word or through absolution or through the Lord's Supper? Hmm. Yes. And of course, the Lutheran and biblical answer <laughs> is, yeah. Yes, right. <laughs> These are all ways that God showers his gifts upon us and believers rejoice in receiving all these gifts. Well, and I've shared my story about six, seven months ago when I first came on the show, getting letting people get to know me a little bit. But I can tell you that I was about 13, 14-ish years old when I first uh, came to faith, air quotes, and gave my heart to Jesus and then was baptized around 14. And this was after going to a a midweek sort of revival kind of singing thing, and it was very emotional, and I had just gotten in trouble at home, nothing really serious, but just doing kind of stuff you shouldn't be doing as a boy, and so I, uh, yeah, so I was I was feeling bad for, I was grounded, so then I got saved, and and my, on the way home, my dad says, well, if, uh, if, if, if Jesus forgives you, I guess I have to forgive you too, so he lifted my grounding, which, um, Honestly, if I'd have thought about that, I'd have given my heart to Jesus like two weeks earlier. But as I think back on it, I think, but wait a minute, here's the deal. I never remember a time in my life where I didn't believe. I mean, from right. infancy, my parents and, and raised me in the faith. My dad took me to church frequently when it was kind of just me and him for a while. And I, I always, I don't remember a time when I didn't believe. And so it's like that faith that I had at seven, eight, nine, ten. None of that counted for anything. Uh, and if it was, of course, my work, of course it didn't count. But it's evidence that that God works in the hearts of people through His own means, through the proclamation of the Word, and certainly He did so in baptism too. So yeah, I agree with you. The trouble would be like, let's say you come to faith through the proclamation of the Word, and then okay, it's time to get baptized, and they go well, I don't want to get baptized for whatever reason. Well, well now you're right. saying you believe, but you're rejecting the clear teaching of Scripture. So, yeah, as we've been talking about through these pastoral epistles, you know, public ministry, rightly dividing the word, uh, <laughs> the proper distinction between law and gospel, all the things that public teachers are called to do as pastors, it's not clear cut. You know, we can't be replaced by AI because if, if all we were were answer machines, then that would be really easy to replace us. But it, it takes knowing your people and knowing the people who you're advising, being soul healers, right, seal sorgers, and, and, and being there for people and recognizing that they have complex lives that aren't just black and white in the sense of how you can treat people. Oh, Absolutely. What I've found is that when people come from non-Lutheran traditions, and I'm not saying they're not saved, if, if, if the Holy Spirit has worked through the preached word to give them repentance and faith in Jesus, they're saved. But, but if they're in error about what baptism is, uh, it, it, it's out of love for them that we want them to see what God actually teaches about this, especially because of all the comfort and assurance it can give them. And, uh, and of course, we, we, we want people to, to bring their infants for holy baptism. And so if there are people who are not doing that, you know, out of love for them, we, we want to help them see that this is a wonderful gift they should give their children. And, and so, again, um, we're not just uh, concerned about winning theological arguments. This is for the sake of, of people understanding the, the wonderful gift that God wants to give them. 
Amen to that. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And then 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism which corresponds to this, in that case it was the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now we add that to the text that we are looking at today, right? So according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the saying that he Paul says is trustworthy, and he wants Pastor Titus to insist on those things. But what's fascinating to me, I'd love to hear you talk about it, he says, I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Isn't that fascinating? You are not saved by your works, only by God's grace. And Paul says, by teaching that, people will do more good works. <laughs> I think that's where people lose us in the Lutheran tradition, because we're like, yeah, good works yeah. are very important, and here's why. Yeah, one way I like to talk about it, and, and before I mention this real briefly, since you mentioned Jesus' statement uh, in John 3, unless you're born again of water, the Spirit, the unless there is not saying, oh, uh, baptism is absolutely necessary if you die without it, even if you believe in Jesus, you're lost. You have to remember who Jesus was talking to. He wasn't talking to a believer who was looking forward to being baptized but didn't have the opportunity. Uh, he's talking to Nicodemus, who, as the Pharisee, had willingly rejected the baptism of John. And uh, so it's one thing to believe in Jesus and haven't had a chance to be baptized yet. It's another thing to say, I don't need it because I'm, uh, uh, you know, I've done enough good things. And so Jesus was basically saying to Nicodemus, if you don't recognize that you're a sinner that needs my salvation and holy baptism, then you can't enter the kingdom of God. That was his point. But as to your issue now here in Titus, uh, where the grace of God results in us actually living a life of good work. You know, we think of, of another famous passage, uh, uh, Ephesians 2, that, that Lutherans love. You know, you're saved by grace through faith, this none of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by work, so that no one can boast. And we love that, and we should. <laughs> That's right. But then Paul goes on, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus uh, for good work. And so here we see that, that to uh, be saved, to be adopted into God's household, is, is for him to now say, because I love you, this is how I want you to live. This is how I've created you to live, because to do it the way you were doing it before as an unbeliever is going to destroy you and other people. And one analogy I like to use is that, let, let's say uh, a parent adopt a child. Um, uh, they, they love that child unconditionally. They adopted that child by, by pure grace. The child didn't have to do anything to deserve their love or their adoption. But once that child is in their house, the parents now teach that child right from wrong. They start saying, okay, as a member of our family, this is how we expect you to live. And they're doing that not because the child has to earn their love uh, or even maintain their love, but because, because the parents love the child, they're saying, uh, this is how we want you to live because it'll be a blessing for you and a blessing for others. Uh, uh, God created us as human beings to live in a certain way. And when we do that, uh, blessing result, not in the sense of earning salvation, but, but in the sense that we're living in the way God has created us humans to live. 
Oh, that's such a good point. It really is. Because, you know, we, I love that though, your Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, and we, we, they leave off 10 all the time, right? Created uh, for good works so that we may walk in them. Because it is our good works too, that, you know, being careful to devote themselves to good works. That's us. Because as he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. So it's not even like the good works that we do are just for like our own benefit, right? Well, we're not doing good work so that God will look down from his heavenly height and say, oh yeah, you know, Phil's doing pretty good today. He's he's fed a couple people. I think I might, I don't know, I think I might put a fresh coat of paint on his mansion that he's going to get in heaven. No, we, we do good works because, um, I think as Luther might say, because our neighbor needs them. Right. Now the Absolutely. Ten- and you could even, even though I guess you could think this is selfish, but it's not from a proper point of view, not only does our neighbor need our good work, but even we need them. And in other words, oh, when I'm living in a way that God wants me to live, they're profitable and excellent, like Paul said, um, versus living in sinful ways. It might be pleasurable for the time, but it eventually takes its toll and bites me in the end. You know, um, uh, uh, and so uh, living according to God's will uh, uh, is not only a blessing to our neighbor, but even a blessing for ourselves, because now we're in harmony with the God, way God created us to live, rather than living in rebellion against it. Amen to that. Now, what comes next is so useful, so useful to us. And and now we just got done talking about, I guess, bef- at the top of the show, being obedient to authorities, and now there's something about controversies within even faith discussions. Uh, verse 9 once again says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, doctrine is not worthless. It's worth defending. But there are some things that maybe even uh, the most faithful pastors engage in, in terms of controversies and genealogies even. I know that has a specific meaning in this context, but there's things that we involve ourselves in that maybe aren't the most profitable. Right. Yeah, we we really have to um, uh, 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 watch that we don't take something that is not um, uh, an essential teaching of God's word and and make it into a, Something that that uh, that we say, thus saith the Lord, what when God has, and especially if, if if we're you know uh, leaning on something that that uh, and turning it into something we have to do in order to be saved. A good example: the comment about genealogy. People might think, well, what's wrong with the genealogy? In fact, e- even in Scripture, there are are good uses of genealogies. You think the Gospels of Matthew and Luke they show us the genealogy of Jesus? You know. You know very likely what he's talking about here of, of the the circumcision group that he's referring to in Titus 1 verse 10 were, were uh, uh, false teachers who were insisting that we were saved by various works of the Jewish law, including some of the ceremonial laws. And so very likely the, the genealogy they're talking about here was asking, you know, can, can you can you trace your ancestry back to some Jewish lineage? as though your 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 blood connection to Abraham made you closer to God than than you know those mere Gentiles. And 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 so Paul says that that's nonsense. You know, you're not saved by race, you're saved by grace. Um uh, the only time genealogies are important in the Bible is when the, the, the God uses them to lead us to Christ. 
Um, and so that's very likely what was going on, uh, the false teaching here. And you might, you might realize how appealing this might have been to some of the Cretans because, you know, they had been previously to the gospel. They had been leaving, living these lives as un, of unbridled licentiousness and immorality. And now come these guys, you know, I, I think of how, you know, some of the clean cut Mormon missionaries that come to your home, you know, here, here come these circumcision group and they're saying, Hey, we're going to show you how to be good, upstanding, moral people so that you can go to heaven. And that can be a very appealing thing, you know, <laughs> especially if you've been enslaved to sin and you're in bondage to it. Paul says nonsense. Uh, the solution to our, our licentiousness is not legalism. The solution to our, 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 our sin is Jesus. And uh, so avoid these false teachers who are pointing you in the wrong direction really powerful then follows it shows just how serious he is about this because now speaking fairly directly to pastor titus and his authority as an overseer he says as for a person who stirs up division assuming it's this division he's been speaking of after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful he is self-condemned now, I, I don't know how, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, I don't know how prescriptive this warning once, then twice, and then be done with them is, but I right. would, would certainly say that we as pastors sometimes have the, well, the unsavory duty of calling to account those who are causing division within the body of the church. Right. And again, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is so much like once or twice, and then that's it. I mean, uh, I, I think it's more the idea of, there comes a point where you don't waste your time with somebody if they're not teachable. In other words, there's a distinction between someone who's misled in an error, but they're willing to hear you out and be taught by the word of God and humble themselves and, and be willing to be corrected. But if you have somebody who, who is convinced that they have the truth and you don't, and they want to come in and feel your sheep and, and, and cause division in your congregation, then, 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 you, you seek to enable them and you become the shepherd who guards the gate, so to speak. And you say, hey, you know, I've tried to tell you the truth. I've tried to, to show you your error and you're having none of it. So the conversation is done and I'm going to keep you from misleading our sheep. Uh, you don't have a voice here. I'm sorry. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Well, he wraps up his letters before I read uh, the t verses 12 through 15, which is basically just the kind of the conclusion to his whole letter here. Anything else you want the people to know from our from our chapter today? Uh, not really. I think the time left, let's look at these last few verses. We should have enough there to, to unpack. Sounds great. So he says, starting with verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to do good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Very lovely way to end the letter here. He's providing for some of the folks that he knows are going to be traveling. He gives some updates of what he'll be doing. And he says, basically, send my love. And, and everybody here says hi, too. Uh, what can we unpack from this? Well, a couple of things. Here, here we see that the mystery that, that God uh, uh, continues his mission through people. You know, you think of the Great Commission, go make disciples. And, of course, the Great Commission continues now 2,000 years later. 
And I've often thought, you know, uh, God could carry out the Great Commission so much more efficiently if he just would open the heavens and do evangelism himself. But he right. chose to send flawed people like us to bring the gospel. I'm going to ask him why someday he might not answer my question. I don't know. But, but this is the fact. He worked through us, flawed individuals who, who live by grace, to, to, to bring the gospel to other people. We, we are his instrument. And, and, and we see this happening here uh, as, as Paul, you know, wrote this letter inspired by the Spirit and, and very likely delivered to Titus and these people in Crete by, by some of Paul's fellow ministers. And then uh, another thing we learned from this at the end, uh, once again, uh, even though he, he's made it very clear that, that we're saved not because of righteous things we have done, but because of God's mercy, he ends in, in chapter 3, verse 14, now, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need, uh, not be unfruitful. And here I really think Paul is saying, hey, Titus, remind these people that now that they're saved, they get to honor God and serve their neighbor to their vocation. Uh, I, I like the idea of don't be unfruitful. In, in other words, uh, now that you know that you're saved and you're waiting for Christ's return, uh, don't just say, well, um, uh, now my, my, my vocation in life doesn't matter. I'm just going to sell my home and quit my job and sit on the hill in a white robe and wait for Jesus to come. No. <laughs> now that you're saved, uh, continue to uh, uh, work and serve God, uh, glorify God and serve others through your vocation especially helping those who are in need, those who, who are incapable of caring for themselves. Uh, a part of our, our joy in this world as believers is to serve others as Christ has served. So, so even though we look forward to the second coming of Christ, uh, as, as forgiven children of God, we, 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 we honor God and worship him with our lives through our vocation. God works through us in our vocations to serve others. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Well, sounds good to me, and that brings us to the bottom of the show for the most part. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Thomas Eckstein, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Jamestown, North Dakota. Thanks again, Pastor. It's always great having you on the show. I look forward to having you on again. My privilege. Thank you. And folks at home, tomorrow is another edition of Free Text First Fridays. So be sure to join us as we go a little off topic. We're at the end of this book, so it makes for a natural division. But then when we come back on Monday, well, we're going to be doing Hosea. So if you're interested in Hosea, be sure to join us on Monday at the same time. Until then, I'll end just as Paul did. All who are with me send greetings to you and greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Until we meet again, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. As we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>